Well, in the decades right around Jesus' life and death, those before and after, there were these would-be messiahs who would come along. And they would gather a lot of attention and they would start these kind of messianic movements. And one would come after the next, and you can imagine what these guys were like. They were always drawing attention to themselves, always trumpeting who they were. They were somebody special. You should listen and follow me. We're the Messiah. I'm the one God sent. And little movements would start to develop around each of these people. And then finally, Rome would get tired of them. And Rome would take them into custody. And Rome would kill them, usually by execution. And at that point, their movement collapsed. I mean, just disappeared, vanished. All of a sudden, there's this movement, and then the leader gets killed, and then class dismissed. Everybody goes home. It's over. That happened every single time, except one. There was one man who claimed to be the Messiah that Rome crucified. But the movement didn't collapse. It didn't fade away. Instead, it multiplied. And in 300 years, that movement covered the whole Roman Empire. Why is Christianity different? What happened after Jesus died? About mid-afternoon on a Friday that Jesus was killed, Sabbath began at sunset. And the Jewish law said that no work could be done on the Sabbath, and so he couldn't be buried that night or the entire next day. And so Joseph of Arimathea, a guy who was part of the Sanhedrin, so a religious leader at his time, he, he wanted to, to bury Jesus. He was kind of a quiet, but you might call closeted follower of Christ. And so he goes to Pilate and asks permission to take the body and bury him. Pilate thinks it's too soon. Most people who are crucified haven't died at this point. And so he checks out with his guards on the scene, the Roman soldiers experienced in crucifixion, and they confirm that Jesus is dead. And so Pilate releases the body to Joseph of Arimathea, who takes Jesus and buries him in a tomb, kind of almost like a cave, buries him in a tomb, covers it with a large rock, while these women stood by the side and watched this burial take place. In our series through the Gospel of Mark, we pick up in Mark chapter 16, verse 1 this morning. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. See, what separated Christianity from every other religion and what separates Jesus from every would-be Messiah is the resurrection. 
Every other religion is based on teachings or ideas or philosophy, but Christianity is firmly rooted in a historical event. Now, maybe you come this morning and you're not sure you believe in the resurrection. You're not sure that it was a historical reality. If that's the situation that you're in, don't worry. You have good company. Because no one at the time of Christ believed He was going to be raised from the dead. He was crucified on a Friday, and that Saturday, nobody believed in a resurrected Jesus. I mean, just think of what we see here in this story. The women, they had bought spices to go anoint a dead body. They weren't expecting a resurrection. When they were walking on the way to the tomb, they were talking about who's going to move the stone. They thought they were going to go put spices on a dead body and that they were going to have a hard time finding somebody who could help them move the stone out of the way. And where are the men? Where are His disciples? Oh yeah, they're all hiding. Because they didn't believe in a resurrection. They're scared to death that what happened to Jesus might happen to them. Even when the women had seen the stone rolled away, even when they'd seen the empty tomb, even when the angel had spoken to them, they still didn't get it. They didn't respond with faith, but fear. It says they were trembling, confused, bewildered, and fled out of fear, keeping their mouth shut. You see, no one on that day believed in the resurrection of Jesus. No one expected it. And yet, if you look into the evidence, if you're willing to consider the evidence that's out there, I think you will come to the conclusion that thousands and millions and hundreds of millions of people throughout the centuries have come to, and that is that the most rational, reasonable conclusion is that Jesus indeed rise from the dead. That Jesus is alive. Some of the evidence appears right here in Mark. Notice how he mentions these specific women by name. Mary Magdalene, Mary the, son, the mother of John, Salome. The reason he mentions them at the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of 16 is because he's telling you, here are the names of the eyewitnesses. These women were alive at the time of Jesus' death. They saw where he was buried. They saw the empty tomb. You can go talk to them. You can look and see, if, are they reliable witnesses? Does their story check out? So you can go to the eyewitnesses and ask them yourselves these questions. But it's not just that there are specific women named. It's that any women were named. See, the first century culture was much different than our culture today. And I think that we would have find, find their view of women to be offensive. And rightly so. See, women in the first century, they didn't carry much credibility. To the point that they weren't allowed to testify in a court. They weren't considered reliable witnesses. And when it came to religious instruction or religious teaching, they were for sure not allowed to participate. And so if you were Mark, and you were trying to think, okay, Jesus died, now what are we going to do? Let's launch a movement. He said He was going to rise from the dead. Let's fake it. Even if that was in your mind, you would never have put women at the scene to be the first witnesses of the empty tomb and therefore the first witnesses of the resurrection. No one would have coached you to do that. That would have been insane. 
I mean, all the way in the second century, you have Celsus, one of the biggest critics of Christianity in his era, making fun, mocking the Christians because there were women who supposedly saw, as what Celsus is saying, the resurrected Jesus. There's only one reason that women would have been the first one to see Jesus. The only one reason that Mark would have included them in his account of what happened. Because it's true. Because this is the historical reality. These women were courageous enough to go and be identified with Jesus and cared enough to anoint His his body. And they were the ones who saw the empty tomb and heard the angel. They're the ones who reported the good news. And like I said, if you want to go talk to them, you can. Go look into the evidence for the resurrection and you will find that it is substantial. The changed lives of the disciples and how they all ended their life in painful deaths. The launch of the church. The evidence, I think, becomes to be a bit overwhelming. But maybe that's not your concern this morning. Maybe you uh, aren't thinking about whether it's true, but whether the resurrection is relevant. Does it have anything to say to me and my life and in my day? If that's what you're thinking, you're a lot like a woman named Marilyn Sewell, although I'm sure you've probably never heard of her name. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and a Unitarian pastor. And she had the opportunity to interview Christopher Hitchens before he died. You may be familiar with Hitchens. He was a well-known author, speaker, wrote for a variety of news magazines, was kind of part of the literati, the educated elite who shaped culture and opinion on a variety of subjects in our, in our culture, in our world. And he was a committed atheist. He's one of part of the group of the new atheists. He wrote a book called God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. And so this woman, Marilyn Sewell, a Unitarian pastor, has the opportunity to interview Mr. Hitchens. Here's how the interview starts. Sewell asks, or Sewell says, The religion you cite in your book, Mr. Hitchens, is generally of a fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between those of the fundamentalist faith and liberal uh, Christians like me? I mean, you can hear what she's saying, right? Mr. Hitchens, you're so well-respected, you're so well-renowned, we all want your approval. And so I don't want you to think I'm like one of those crazy Christians who actually believe the Bible. That's not me. I call myself a Christian, but I'm enlightened and open-minded like you. So I'm sure you have some kind words for me, sir. Here's how Hitchens responds. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Wow! I mean, you talk about nailing it. No exaggeration. Sewell's next comment is, let's go talk about something else. And she changed the subject. I mean, Hitchens is saying, look, you can call yourself whatever you want, but if you don't believe in the cross, that there Jesus went to die and to pay the penalty for sin of all who would believe in him, if you don't believe in the resurrection that Jesus was raised from the dead, then call yourself what you'd like, but you're not in any serious, meaningful sense a Christian. 
It's, it's crazy. Here's an avowed atheist, someone for sure outside the faith, outside the church, outside what you and I believe, and yet they can see with greater clarity the significance, the weight, the massive importance of the resurrection of Christ than even some people who claim to be on the inside can. If Christopher Hitchens could tell you anything, it is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were of massive, life-changing importance. If they are true, they are anything but irrelevant. This morning we will look at how the resurrection speaks to our life. How it is relevant to our life. Specifically how it speaks to our past, how it speaks to our present, and how it speaks to our future. We'll start with the past. Let's look back at verses 6 and 7 of Mark 16. This is the angel speaking. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. One thing that stands out to me in these verses is that Peter is mentioned twice. He's part of the disciples, and then he's mentioned specifically by name. My wife and I have four kids. The youngest is named Luke. So imagine she were to say to me, hey, go call the kids and Luke and tell them dinner's ready. You're like, why? What's up with that? That's a weird way of saying it. But that's exactly what happens. Go tell the disciples and Peter. So see, clearly there's some point being made about Peter here. But what point are they trying to make? Well, if you've been with our series through Mark, you might know that Peter was one of the earliest disciples and in many ways was seen as the leader of the twelve. Because he was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter saw miracles, not only the miracles that everybody else saw, but miracles that very few others saw. So for example, in Mark, when we read about how Jesus was transfigured on top of the mountain and revealed in all his glory, Peter was there. In Mark, when Jairus comes to Jesus and tells him his daughter is dying and Jesus gets to the house and by the time he gets there, the daughter is dead and Jesus walks into that room and raises that daughter to life, Peter was there. He saw it all. Peter was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And because all he'd seen and because all he'd experienced and because all the teaching that Peter had, had received from Jesus, he was the first one to say, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I mean, the spiritual trajectory of Peter's life was going through the roof until the day Jesus died. The darkest day of Peter's life. See, on that day, we also learned in Mark that after Jesus had been taken away and while he was being interrogated, Peter drifted over by that crowd. And when a slave girl said to him, hey, don't I recognize you? Weren't you a follower of Jesus? He denied it. He went on to deny Christ two other times, saying not only did he not follow him, but he didn't even know him. So here is Peter denying Christ. He hears the rooster crow, and it hits him that he has sinned in a massive way. He has denied his Savior. At Jesus' most vulnerable and weakest moment, Peter left him. He abandoned him. And Peter just runs away and starts crying. Crying over his sin. Crying over his weakness. Crying over his failure. 
Well, that's the last time that we see Peter before Jesus is crucified. And when we leave him, he has betrayed Jesus, and I think probably felt a lot like Judas did. So what's amazing is that when we get into Mark 16, that Jesus reaches out to him by name. The angel says, he is risen. He's not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Isn't that great? Go tell his disciples and the one who's really blown it. Go tell his disciples and especially the one who committed the great sin. Go tell his disciples and the one who denied me. Tell him, tell Peter that Jesus is alive and wants to restore his relationship with him. And with those words, Peter's life is infused with hope. Because Jesus was alive, because the grave was empty, because He defeated death, because of the resurrection, He has hope for life beyond His sin and failures. Well, there's a message for you and me. There's a message for all of us this morning in this story. And the message is this. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've blown it, no matter how heinous the sin is that you've committed, no matter, Jesus Christ offers you hope and grace and forgiveness. He says, go tell Peter, go tell the loser, go tell the sinner that I want to meet with him. Now a lot of people, they don't have that impression of Jesus. They've got a whole different perspective on Christianity. Their perspective is that Christians and Jesus and the church are self-righteous and condemning. See, there's a sharp contrast between how Jesus treated people who are moral failures and how the church treats people like that. Jesus, He never turned away someone who came to Him in faith. But the perception outside of the church whether it's true or not, I'm not always sure. But the perception, and therefore something we need to listen to, is that we as churches, we as Christians, reject, push aside, don't have time for people with serious sin and serious struggles. Not only does Jesus reach out to Peter, who's blown it by denying him, not only does he reach out to Peter at his lowest moment, but Jesus also appoints the Samaritan woman. Remember, she had five failed marriages. He appoints her, appoints her to be his first missionary. Jesus goes to tax collectors and prostitutes. And Mary Magdalene, the woman we read about in Mark 16.1, who is one of the first witnesses of the empty tomb, remember her? She had seven demons cast out of her. One time, Jesus is talking to the religious authorities. You know, the morally upright people, the straight-laced, the people who thought very highly of themselves and their religiosity and their morality, the people who did all the religious things exactly right, the people who were dedicated and committed and beyond belief. Jesus looked at those people and he said to them, I tell you the truth, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting to get into the kingdom of God before you. They were shocked. They were shocked. They were angry. Who are you to say tax collectors and prostitutes get in the kingdom of God before us, the morally upright, the religious authority? 
C.S. Lewis thought about what Jesus said and then wrote this in The Problem of Pain. Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. See, sometimes it's the biggest sinners, the biggest failures. Sometimes it's the ones who know they've really blown it. They're the quickest to run to Jesus and to trust in Him. People outside the church, and I'm afraid too many people inside the church, and I'm afraid too much of all of our hearts, start buying into this idea that Christianity is for the good people. It's for the moral people. It's for the people who are dedicated and committed and who have their act together, who are conservative and live good lives so that Jesus can accept them. And we're trying harder to live a better life, to be a better person, to be a better Christian, to, so Jesus will be happy so I can go to heaven. But that is not at all the message of the resurrection. That's not the message that the angel gave to the women. That's not the message that Jesus has for us. No, to wherever you are, Jesus is saying that you are not beyond hope. You see, once you start hearing that Jesus is for the committed, the dedicated, the moral, the people who got their act together, you start thinking there's no room for me. Because if I'm honest, that's not me. I don't have it all together. But see, that's why this is in the Scripture. Go call the disciples and Peter. Go tell the one who really blew it, I want a relationship with him. No matter how you've blown it, Jesus wants a relationship with you. So the first point this morning is that the resurrection speaks to the sin of our past. The second point is the resurrection speaks to our present problems. Our present problems. All of us have significant problems. They may not be as bad as the person next to us, but in our mind, they're significant problems. If you're not in a time now, a season of your life where you're in significant problems, maybe it's because you just came out of it, or maybe you're heading in it to tomorrow, you just don't know it yet. But all of us in this world will have serious struggles. They might be struggles with our job and our career, might be with our marriage or our kids. It could be a financial crisis or a relationship crisis. It could be loneliness or depression or an eating disorder or an addiction. But when you're in the middle of those problems, whatever it is in your life, they seem overwhelming. They seem bigger than you can handle. They seem like they're just going to oppress you and run you over and you've got no hope. I think the resurrection speaks to those kinds of situations. As we've gone through the Gospel of Mark these last several months, what we've seen over and over is that Jesus enters into dark places to give people new life. One of the most common responses that people have when they encounter Jesus, it's kind of weird. It just says, He got up. Something like that. Either the phrase he got up or a similar phrase is found 20 times, over 20 times in the Gospels. A bunch of them just here in the Gospel of Mark. Like there was the time that Jesus went to Peter's house because his mother-in-law was seriously ill. They didn't know if she was going to live or die. And we read in Mark 131, so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. Or there was the time that Jesus was walking down the road and he crossed paths with a guy named Levi. He'd later be called Matthew. And he was a tax collector. 
And tax collectors were kind of the scum of the scum, the worst of the worst. This is a guy that everybody would have given up on. Nobody was inviting him to church. He wasn't even in anybody's prayer list. Mark 2.14 As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. There was a time that Jesus was teaching in a synagogue and he saw a man sitting there with a shriveled hand. Mark 3.3 Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus healed them. There's the time that Jesus is on the boat with the disciples, all of them former fishermen, or, or several of them former fishermen. They're out on the boat of the Sea of Galilee, and the storms are here, and it's tossing the boat, and, the, and these former fishermen all think they're going to die, and they run to Jesus because he's asleep in the back of the boat, and they wake him up, and they say, Teacher, don't you care? Mark 4, 39. He got up. Jesus got up this time, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And Jesus got up and brought order to life. Then there was the time, like we already spoke about, of Jairus' daughter, a 12-year-old little girl. And Jairus goes to Jesus and tries to get Jesus to come, but Jesus gets sidetracked, and by the time he gets to Jairus' house, the girl's dead. There are people outside, they're crying, they're wailing. It's a terribly sad scene. If you would have said there was hope for that girl, you would have been called naive. You would have been called gullible. You would have been called foolish. How silly to think there was hope for that girl. Mark 5.41 Jesus, He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. There was a story later on of the father who's got a young kid, a young boy, and the Bible says that he has some sort of demonized issue that's causing him to have seizures. And one of the things that this demon's doing is continually throwing this boy into the fire. Well, you can imagine what it's like to be the father in that situation. He had exhausted all of his resources looking for someone who could help his son. Finally, he ends up before Jesus. Mark 9 27, but Jesus took him, the son, by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Then there's the story of blind Bartimaeus. To be blind in the first century was to be relegated to a life of poverty and misery and begging, not able to provide for yourself, not able to have a family. Blind Bartimaeus sits on the side of the road every day and begs people for money as they walk by. One day he hears a large group of people walk by and he asks, who's that, who's that? And someone tells him that it's Jesus who's walking by. And blind Bartimaeus starts calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they tell him to shut up, but he's so desperate he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And finally Jesus says, come here. And they go tell him, and here's what we read about in Mark 10.50. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet. Blind Bartimaeus jumped up and came to Jesus. See, the reason each of these people was able to get up and walk and get up and see and get up and be healed and get up and have a changed heart and a changed life and get up and have a new life is because Jesus got up out of the grave. Because Jesus got up out of the grave, that means that there is hope for every person no matter how dark. 
The Bible says that what is impossible for us is possible for God. Because of the resurrection, because Jesus got up out of the grave, there is hope for whatever problem, whatever crisis, whatever serious issue you're in. There's hope. Jesus is alive. He was resurrected. Because Jesus rose from the dead, there is no problem that you face that He doesn't care about, know about, and have power over. Because Jesus rose from the dead, there are no hopeless people. There are no hopeless problems. There are no hopeless predicaments. So the resurrection, it means that there is grace and forgiveness for our past sin. Past, present, and future sin. It means that there is present help, God's present help in our trouble today, tomorrow. And the resurrection speaks about a future reward for those who believe the gospel. I think the best way to understand the promise of the resurrection for the future is captured by two different tombstones. You know, on tombstones, sometimes they just have the names and dates, but sometimes there's a message on a tombstone called an epitaph. One of the tombstones is by a guy who, you may not know his name, Mel Blank, but you've probably heard his voice. He was the guy who was in charge of uh, being the voice on Looney Tunes, you know, those crazy cartoons. So he's like Bugs Bunny, and he's Daffy Duck, and all those favorite characters that you've heard before, or if you're like me, you grew up with. He was the voice behind many, if not most, of them. In 1989, he died. He was 81 years old. And he left final instructions about what should be written on his tombstone. And here's what it said. That's all, folks. <laughs> if you don't know, that was his sign-off. That's the way all the Looney Tunes shows signed off with Mo Blank's voice. That's all, folks. The other tombstone... It was written about by a guy named Philip Yancey. He tells about a friend's grandmother who's buried in rural Louisiana. Little Episcopalian church set in a, a, a place of these huge oaks. Ancient oak trees, roots, branches, vines, all this. And there's a little Episcopalian church out in the middle of nowhere. And there's a little cemetery connected to this church. And underneath those huge trees sits a tombstone. And it has one word on it. Waiting. You see, those two tombstones represent two different ways to think about your future, two different ways to think about your life now. One of them says, that's all, folks, this is it. Get what you can. Make your life in this world as good as you can. Go for it here because this is the end. The other says, waiting. Waiting to see my resurrected Savior. Waiting for my King. Waiting for a better reward. Waiting on Jesus. Worship team is going to come out now and prepare to lead us in more singing. While they do, I just want to share with you a, a brief story. A very common thing happened a couple weeks ago, and that is my friend's dad died. The dad was 84 years old. He had had a kind of a long bout with cancer, and so everyone in the family, they, they knew the end was near. This dad had lived a faithful Christian life. And my friend said that as he drove to 
a, a distance away to see his dad as often as he could, that he and his dad would just sit and they'd encourage each other by reading the promises of the resurrection. They would give each other hope as his dad was getting ready to leave this world by reading to each other the promise of new life in Christ. That the resurrection of Christ means our resurrection for all who believe in Him. Waiting. Waiting for the return of Christ. Waiting for my King. Let's pray. Father, it is a story that I think astonishes our soul every time we hear it. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Are you kidding me? What kind of Savior is this? What kind of Savior seeks out sinners like us? What kind of Savior shows up in our day-to-day life? What kind of Savior promises a future reward? Our Savior, King Jesus. May you be honored as we sing of your resurrection. Amen.